where, where should we study from today in the Bible? <laughs> Daniel chapter 7, do you think? That's a good place. To some of you, it may seem like we're stalled in chapter 7, and we are. As I suggested to you some time ago, this is, a, this is a, an immense study, and uh, uh, I am certainly by no means an expert in uh, prophecy and these kinds of things, so I am learning as we go, and uh, it is an awesome, awesome uh, thing. So uh, we're taking our time because I'm taking my time, and I want to, uh, I want to rightly divide the word of truth uh, as best I'm able, so... Um, if you're growing a bit impatient, uh, you want us to scurry through the Bible, um, we're not going to do that, okay? So by, bear with me, if you will. We're looking at uh, verses 9 through 14 this morning, and uh, we're going to look at uh, the, the Ancient of Days and the One Like a Son of Man. What we're going to try to do this morning is set the stage, if you will, for next time that we hit this passage. Uh, we're going to look at the symbolic language this morning and understand, try to understand some of the symbolism and glean some appreciation for what God is communicating through Daniel. And then uh, next time, uh, having done that, we will actually look in, in, in more closely at uh, this, the one like a son of man coming on the clouds. That is a very, very key uh, picture and uh, point for us, and we're going to spend some, night, some time looking at that in greater detail because it has a great bearing on everything else that we'll be studying uh, from then on. So this morning we're going to kind of look at uh, an overview of these verses and uh, get some, some sense of the imagery and what these things represent. Read with me, uh, just again from verse 9 through 14. As I looked, you have to look at this chapter kind of like in, 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 in three acts. It's a three-act play, and you'll notice that Daniel's attention first is here, then his attention is here, then his attention is here. And we're going to look, in, in effect, at the second and third acts. He says, As I looked, uh, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Can you imagine God sitting on a throne with wheels? It's a wheel throne. <laughs> Clearly imagery, right? A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Uh, we're looking at... at, at at world history being compressed in these verses. Do you, do you realize that? This is an amazing vision uh, from the beginning of the, the kingdom of Babylon, presumably, to the end of time in these first 14 verses of this, of this chapter. It, it's an amazing vision. But with verse 9, uh, we see, in effect, what I would suggest to you is the second act of this drama, this vision. We see an abrupt transition from the scene by the sea. And remember, the scene by the sea was all these beasts coming up out of the sea, and the sea was uh, tumultuous uh, in, 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 in representing uh, just the nations and kingdoms and chaos and evil and all those kinds of things. And so now the, the scene has, has switched from that to a courtroom scene. 
No longer do we have the descriptions of those animal-like beasts in those first verses. Uh, rather, we see now in this courtroom scene uh, two new personages, two new characters, if you will. They appear in this uh, second act. The two main characters are described in human-like terms. The first one is described as the Ancient of Days, and the second is one like a son of man. Now in that, in his, the second part of his vision, he sees that thrones were set up. So it's like the courtroom is empty, the thrones are in place, empty thrones, if you will. Empty thrones might suggest that there is hope. When you go to a courtroom and you, and you, and you walk into a courtroom and the courtroom is empty and the, and the judge's uh, place is empty, his, his seat of judgment is empty, you still look at that and you say, this is a place where justice can be found. Is that a fair statement? Or at least we hope that justice can be, can be found there. And so uh, I, I want to suggest to you that, that he sees these, these empty thrones and before any living creature appeared upon those thrones... Those empty thrones were an eloquent statement of and sign of hope. Hope of justice and hope of righteousness. Especially in the light of those beasts and the chaos and the evil and all that, that those, those nations had portrayed that we have been studying. Those thrones represent the hope that there actually is someone in control. Who's in control? God's in control. I think it's important that we continue to rehearse that statement, that truth. God is in control. I can't tell you, each week, and sometimes I, I get a little reluctant to be redundant. You can imagine that, me being redundant. You know, to say who's in control, God's in control. I don't want to reduce that to some, just a trite uh, truism, if you will. But, but the reality is, is, is that week after week after week, I get a letter or a call or somebody comes up to me and says, thank you for reminding me that God is in control. I need to hear that every week. So we're going to rehearse that. Who's in control? Turn to your neighbor. Remind your neighbor. God's in control. Don't panic. <laughs> Okay, so you got that. You got these, these empty thrones, symbolic of justice, symbolic of righteousness, the hope of those things. Really, the hope that there is somebody who's in control, especially in the light of the the, the, the earlier parts of this particular chapter. Now, you notice they're thrones plural. We're not told how many thrones, but we do find in the scriptures in a number of different places that there are others associated with God sitting on thrones. And generally, the context is an area in which they would be pronouncing judgment. For instance, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, we read this. Jesus speaks of the Son of Man sitting on his glorious throne along with the twelve, presumably the twelve apostles, sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So again, we see there are others who are going to be sitting on thrones. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this, this passage always amazes me. Paul says that the saints, you and I, will judge the world and we will even judge angels. Now, I don't know about you, but... I have trouble bouncing my checkbook, and I'm going to be judging the world and judging angels. Can you, can, you, can you embrace that one? That's amazing. If we saw an angel today, boy, we would, like, like everybody in the Bible, we'd fall over like dead people, right? If we saw an angel in all of their glory and power. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Jesus says, the overcomer, the overcomer, the one who apparently perseveres to the end, will be given authority over nations. And that, that's packed with meaning. Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, speaks of the 24 thrones around the throne, 
And seated on these are the 24 elders. So we see ample reference to thrones. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, that God literally sits on a throne or that there will be literal thrones in heaven. But what they suggest are, are positions, if you will, uh, of authority and power and judgment. And people invested with that, especially, certainly, God. Um, so the scene is set. He sees these thrones. And, and I think, given the context of the passage as we read it, the scene is set for a solemn, divine judgment to be passed. And as we read further, that judgment will be passed on the beast. And then our attention is directed to one particular throne. And we're told the Ancient of Days took his seat. What an awesome picture. He took his seat. He's seated for the purpose of judgment. Sitting is the usual posture in pronouncing judgment. Here is the one who is in control. The Ancient of Days. Interestingly, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, so essential was the was sitting, the sitting posture for a judge, that uh, a sentence pronounced in any other posture was rendered invalid. So, I mean, to us, it's, you know, of course, you sit down. You know, the judge comes in the courtroom, and he what? He sits down. Court is in session. Uh, the judgment is ready to be made after uh, the, uh, the trial is had. And so we see this picture. The Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, did he literally take a seat? No, it's figurative language. He's, he is the judge. Here come the judge, right? Now the phrase, the Ancient of Days, is one that denotes a number of images. The Ancient of Days. When you, th when you think of that, when you, when you contemplate that phrase, what, what comes to mind to you? Huh? An old person, right? An elderly person. This particular is the Ancient of Days. Not just a Ancient of Days. It's the Ancient of Days. Meaning, he who is most ancient. Most ancient as to days. And that's the equivalency of, 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 of speaking of his eternality. God is an eternal being. Meaning, no beginning, no end. That he is, he oversees all the days from eternity past uh, through e the eternal future. He is the Ancient of Days. Now in contrast to the four, four fearsome beasts that we saw earlier in the chapter, Daniel has this vision of Almighty God Himself. Here you have these four beasts vying for power, vying for control, ruling the known world, and you have these kingdoms, if you will, and in contrast to those, you have Almighty God Himself. Isn't that a marvelous picture of contrast? And this is, this is a, a majestic picture of God, this venerable figure, if you will, seated on His throne, preparing to judge. We're told about His clothing. That's a, that's a peculiar thing. His clothing is what? As white as snow. What would that represent, do you suppose? Yeah, white is symbolic of purity. It's also symbolic of honor. It's symbolic of righteousness. The purity, the honor, the righteousness of the judge and of the justice of the sentence that he would pronounce. So everything that he does is good. Everything that he does is right. His justice is is absolutely right and righteous. Sometimes people are, are want to uh, accuse God of being unjust, unfair. Why'd you do this? Why'd you allow this to happen? As if he's playing some, some trick on us. No, 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 no. God is represented here as the Ancient of Days, and he is absolutely, absolutely right and righteous in everything his character, his very nature, and as well, all of his judgments. He's all, the, the whiteness also of his clothing also symbolizes his splendor. 
his glory, his brilliance. It's interesting that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, when Jesus went up on the mount, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew records that, that Jesus was transfigured, he was, he was changed uh, before his disciples' eyes, and Matthew records that his clothes became as white as light. So again, we see the same picture. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, this, this verse has always, always just amazed me. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he speaks of God as one who lives in unapproachable light. What is unapproachable light? It's like, it's like nuclear power. You can't even get close to it. I mean, that's the, that's the closest thing you and I could probably imagine. Uh, just brilliant, brilliant light. God is, in that sense, lives in unapproachable light. And his hair, the hair of his head, was what? That also was as white as wool. Uh, again, that which is characteristic of venerable age, suggesting someone august, venerable, respectable, judicious, and wise. White hair. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32 reminds us, gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained by righteous life. Now, certainly that's not true in every case, obviously, but, but as a general rule of observation of which Proverbs are, that uh, I think it's a, a fair, a fair uh, statement. And then Daniel sees another thing about God. He sees fire. He sees fire. There is an ambiguity uh, in the Old Testament's frequent use of fire in association with God. And as you, as you, if you, if you just go look up fire, uh, as I did in, your, in a concordance, and you see that fire occurs, especially in association with God, in a number of different contexts. It's a very, very interesting study. And I just want to share with you a couple of those. Fire uh, is a symbol of God's presence. Remember Exodus chapter 3. What was, what was the peculiar event in Exodus chapter 3? Do you remember? The burning bush with Moses and the, the bush that was burning but didn't burn up represented God's presence and God spoke out of that bush. In uh, Exodus chapter 19, what was the particular event where, that, where we saw fire in, in Exodus chapter 19? Recall? Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain. Remember when God gave his law to Moses and, and fire was, was uh, exploding from the top of Mount Sinai. Acts chapter 2, there's an interesting passage uh, where God's presence is, uh, is signified by fire. Remember what that was? The Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire rested on the heads of those disciples in that upper room on the day of Pentecost. And so, so in many, many ways, we see that uh, uh, fire is symbolic of God's presence. Fire can be uh, entirely positive, an entirely positive image associated with light, protection, and guidance. Again, uh, back in the book of Exodus in chapter 13, we saw the pillar of fire out of which God's presence, if you will, guided and, and protected Israel in their 40-year wanderings at night. More commonly, fire suggests something transcendent and absolute. It suggests something that's awesome and dangerous and mysterious and destructive. Fire really speaks to multiple dynamics simultaneously. We see that, again, reflected in uh, Exodus chapter 19, Mount Sinai, where all of those dynamics come into play. That's an awesome sight. Destruction was spoken of. It was mysterious. It was dangerous. You couldn't approach the mountain. God's presence was there. It was, there's something transcendent about that and something absolute about that. All that represented by this image of fire. God's splendor can also be expressed by the fiery brightness of the sun. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, speaking of Jesus, his face was like the sun. In Matthew 17, again, back on that Mount of Transfiguration, verse 7, speaking of Jesus, his face shone like the sun. So again, we see this, this brilliance and fire and this imagery uh, picturing uh, God and in his splendor. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, this is a marvelous verse. 
We're told that Jesus is the sun, that he is the radiance of God's glory, or he is the radiant reflection of the glory of God. So again, you see the same idea. The destructiveness of fire also makes it a symbol, but it makes it a symbol of the fierce heat of God's judgment on sin and on those who oppose him and oppose his purpose. You do not want God be mad at you, right? <laughs> no. Again, fire is used in this context, and more particularly, the fire of hell. Eternal burning, eternal loss. And again, uh, we don't know that if hell is actually fiery in the sense that we understand fire, but it's an image again. Uh, it may be simply that hell is the absolute absence of the presence of God. Think about that. You and I, you and I, and, 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 we, and you, don't even, you don't have to be a believer, but we live in a world that is governed by God, right? We live in a creation whereby God has ordained everything and keeps everything together. We live in a creation in a world, even if you're not a believer, who is subject to the grace and the mercy of God, common grace. Absent all that, take God completely out of the picture. Where there is no hope, where it absolutely is desperate beyond all imagination, Hell may not just be fire. It may be the absolute loss of the presence of God. And you are bereft of anything. Now that, that to me is unimaginable. Absolutely unimaginable. I, you know, people talk about hell on earth and, and going through trials and, 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 and suffering that uh, for, for most of us would be unimaginable. But still, God is... God is governing that in their life. God is present. They may not be aware of him, they may not acknowledge him, but the fact is he's still present. So hell and the fire of hell, it doesn't even, if you will, at least for me, it, it doesn't even come close to, to grasping uh, what it means to fall under the judgment of God. Terrifying. The writer of Hebrews says that, that our God is a, is a consuming fire. There's something almost lava-like uh, in the way the verse 10 says that a river of fire flows from the throne. And again, this is, this is symbolic of, of judgment. God's judgment is being, is being flowing out of, from before his throne. This river of vast destructive power. And there's an immense, immense court of witnesses to this. Who might they be? What do you think? Hundreds of millions of the heavenly host. Now we're not told, but presumably they're angels. All these angels attending to him, before him, witnessing this flow, this lava-like flow of fire emanating from the throne, coming out in judgment. All those angels around observing all this uh, they had to be absolutely, absolutely marvel at it and aghast at the same time. The heavenly host. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, we're told that God appears with myriads of holy ones. Myriads, countless. In Jude 14, that one chapter little book at the end of the New Testament, verse 14, we read this. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holiness, holy ones. Now the question is, why is he coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones? Hmm. Well, verse 15 tells us, to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. Ooh. We don't want to be caught grumbling and fault finding, do we? Grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. 
Why is he coming? Why is he coming with myriads of angels to judge, to bring judgment? So this is a, this is a, this is a terrifying passage. God brings judgment on evil, on sin, and on the wicked. There is a day of judgment clearly stored up. And finally we read, back in our Daniel passage, finally we read that the court was seated and this phrase was spoken and the books were opened. What books? What books are open? God keeps books? What do you think? Does God literally keep books? No, again, it's symbolic language. The books were opened. That phrase, by the way, is repeated in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Listen to this. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Kind of similar language to Daniel, right? Except in Daniel we're not told it's a great white throne. We just said it was a throne. The sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. What books? Well, let's read on. He says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. How many like that book? Yeah, that's the book we're aiming for, right? The book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Again, you see this imagery of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This, this sense, this absolute absence of God and his grace and mercy, presence, power, provision, all of that, uh, the lake of fire. So these books were open. The Bible records different kinds of books. And uh, sometimes the books record God's purposes regarding final issues of history, man's history, or regarding particular segments of that history. And these are recorded as visions or simply books or scrolls. If you look with me at uh, Jan Daniel chapter 8, we see some examples in Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, verse 26. The vision of the evenings and mornings has been given to you. It is true. But notice this. But seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Now we know that Daniel recorded everything he saw. He says that. He says, in this vision, I wrote it down. I wrote the substance of it down. So he wrote it down in a scroll, a book, or something, and here... Here he's commanded to seal it up. So there's a book. If you look at chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So again, this picture, this idea of sealing something up. And we know that scrolls were sealed, and scrolls were likened to our books today. In chapter 10, verse 21. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. So we see another, another allusion to another book, a book of truth. What's that? Is that the word of God? What is that exactly? We're not told. Chapter 12, we see another uh, reference to these things. Verse 4. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Verse 9, he replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. And, and we'll explore those verses when we get to them. But the, I point them out because they represent books, if you will, or scrolls, Daniel has written down, that have been closed up for us. 
The Bible also speaks of the book of the law. Presumably, that would be the Mosaic law uh, as we have represented in the Old Testament. The Bible also speaks of the books of judgment. In Isaiah chapter 65, we read this. It says that men's evil deeds are written down before the Lord. What else is written down before the Lord? Well, in Malachi 3.16, we're told, the deeds of those who fear the Lord, those also are recorded. And while in God's book of life are recorded the names of those who belong to the Lord. And again, that's the book that we really, really are excited about, right? The book of life. Now in this passage... Daniel, uh, we have no indication of the actual contents of the books. It's not stated uh, clearly. Perhaps we are to assume that they are opened for examination at the place where the sins of the four beasts or the four kingdoms are recorded. If God has recorded all the evil deeds of men, presumably of kingdoms and such, then we're right at a stage of judgment here, we'll see, so probably the books were open to that place. It's like, hmm, okay, Babylon, and especially the fourth kingdom, we're going to look and we're going to bring about judgment. But in any case, judgment is pronounced and the sentence is carried out without delay. Is that not pleasing? Notice there's no endless, endless, endless appeal process. This is absolute judgment. God knows. There's no, needs to be, no need for appeal. No, no possibility of error. No mitigating circumstances. No one's going to be able to say, but, 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 you don't understand. God's going to say, no. My judgment is absolute and righteous and holy. Judgment is pronounced and the sentence carried out without delay. First to suffer judgment is who? No, the first is suffer judgment from the passage. Who's the first to suffer judgment? The fourth beast, right? That fourth indescribable beast with the horn that speaks boastfully. This beast is slain and we're told given over to be burned with what? Fire. Now, as, as kind of a sidelight to this, this execution by burning was a very familiar idea in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 38, uh, you remember uh, Judah, one of the sons of uh, Jacob, 12 sons, 12 tribes? Judah sought to have his daughter-in-law, Tamar, burned to death because of, she was accused of prostitution. Now, what he didn't know was that he was the father of this child that she was pregnant with. So he was quick to judge and say, burn her to death. This was what the law commanded for uh, prostitutes, uh, that they be killed and they be burned with fire. In Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse 14, uh, that verse commands that if a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wicked. Would you agree that's that wicked? And they must, they, all of them, must be executed by fire. Certainly any man who marries a woman and her mother ought to be executed. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 21, verse 9, we're told that if a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she must be killed by fire. And then, of course, that, that passage in Joshua chapter 7, dealing with Achan, do you remember him? The guy that robbed God and uh, kept quiet about it. No one knew, but God brought it to light, and, uh, and then the, the, whole, the whole nation was narrowed down to Achan and his family, and what was the sentence that was pronounced on them? Achan, his whole family, and all his possessions, all of his animals were what? They were burned by fire, destroyed. Execution by burning was a common way of speaking of divine punishment. So again, we see this idea of this beast being thrown into the fire, burned up, because this is a common way in the Old Testament of describing uh, God's punishment. 
In Psalm 11, verse 6, we read this, On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. We know at least of one event where that happened historically. Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah, that's right. Sodom and Gomorrah. Apparently, the blasphemous beast is still spewing out his boastings against both man and God till the very moment he's dragged before the heavenly court. Can you imagine? He is just not stopping whoever he is, whatever this, this, this horn and this beast represents, just boasting, 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 boasting until finally he's dragged in to this courtroom scene. And then suddenly his mouth is stopped and his physical life is taken in his body consigned to the flames of judgment. This ends his loud mouth defiance of the Almighty God. There are lots of people today who are loud mouth defiant in the face of God today. A lot of people say, ah, there is no God, there is no God. And they're bold and absolutely, absolutely belligerent about it. And we think, shut up. But there is going to be one day when their voices and their mouths are going to be silenced. And they are going to be most tragically surprised. What must Daniel have experienced in his vision, in his dream, as he sees this event going on? As he witnessed the triumph of God's holiness and God's truth over the wickedness of unrepentant humanity, what must have Daniel experienced? I'm sure that, that he probably, down deep someplace, as we would no doubt, as the Apostle John did back in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, verse 6, screamed and shouted, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. One day that will be clearly and, and brilliantly our proclamation. Hallelujah! For you do reign, and in, in, just there's no doubt about it. Right now, we believe it by faith, right now? Right now, in the face of, of, of what seems to be contrary evidence and testimony in this world, right now we believe it by faith because the Bible tells us that. But in our physical realm and our physical experience, sometimes it seems like God doesn't reign, like He's out of control, or like He's gone on vacation. But no, He's not. He is what He is in. He's absolutely in control. And one day we will see the consummation of all these things and we will rejoice and say hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. And um, then you see in verse 12, you see the remnants of the world powers. These are the other three beasts. Daniel says, uh, uh, though they had lost their authority, their, their power had been stripped from them, they were still allowed to live for a period of time. Now that's a, that's a fascinating passage. And what might it mean? Without being dogmatic and without absolutely being certain of this, I, I want to suggest to you it could be, not definitively, but it could be a veiled reference to that period of time that we describe as the 1,000-year reign the millennial reign of Christ. Now, is, then that brings up other questions. Is that a literal 1,000 years? Or again, is it uh, apocalyptic language and is it uh, something that is symbolic of, of, of the reign of Christ? Uh, so we, we're going to explore that too when we get there. So you have to suspend all this stuff, okay? Because <laughs> when you read these things and understand that it's largely um, um, metaphorical language and symbolic language, uh, to put a literal interpretation to every single word, uh, it means that we have to be very, very careful about that. So, so, but it could refer to a period of time. We don't know for sure, but it's interesting. Interesting possibility. Possibly these kingdoms uh, are allowed to live so that they may submit to God and His people either in judgment or uh, in doing honor to God, doing honor to His people. There are some passages in Isaiah that I want to read to you that give some indication. Again, we can't be be definitive that there's a direct relationship here, but there's certainly an inference. In chapter 14 of Isaiah, we read this. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob, 
Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Incidentally, we also have to say, uh, is God speaking here of literal physical Israel or is he speaking of spiritual Israel? So we have to make that differentiation and we will do that down the road. But just understand, here's this dilemma again. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. The house of Israel will possess the nations as maidservants and as men servants in the, in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. So you see here this idea of aliens, nations, in effect Gentiles, could be a reference to these nations, if you will, these kingdoms uh, that were allowed to live for a period of time. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 49, we see a similar passage. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Does that sound like doing honor now to God's people? Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. So again, this picture of what God does in taking earthly, worldly kingdoms and, and leaders and such and bringing them to a posture of, of serving God's people. Again, uh, it could be a reference to these passages, this passage of verse 12. In chapter 60 of Isaiah, this is an interesting verse. Chapter 60, verse 12. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. Now that certainly uh, could be descriptive of that fourth kingdom, couldn't it? And the other three kingdoms could be kingdoms that are given time to, in fact, repent and turn and serve God and serve his people. If you go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, you see another, again, reference to this idea. He says, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to whom? The saints, the people of the Most High. And so all the kingdoms and all the, all the rulers and all the authority and all the power that's ever been, presumably represented maybe by those three kingdoms in verse 12, will be handed over to who? To the saints, the people of the Most High. And we're going to receive a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. Somebody say hallelujah. I think that's pretty awesome at the end of time. Now at this point in his vision, Daniel saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And as I suggested to you at the beginning, we're going to spend more time on that next time, that phrase, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. The scene apparently it changes again in his vision. The four beasts have been silenced, they've been sentenced, the fourth beast being destroyed. Then suddenly with the clouds of heaven... There is ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days one like a son of man. To this son of man, the Ancient of Days gives authority, glory, and sovereign power. He gives a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Again, contrast that with what happened to the fourth beast or the fourth kingdom, completely, totally destroyed. So there's clearly this comparison between man's kingdoms, and God's kingdom. The expression, like a son of man, identifies the appearance of this final ruler of the world. Not only as a man, in contrast to the four beasts, but also as the heavenly sovereign in human form, in the flesh, as a man. This is absolutely mind-blowing. God has become human. God has taken on flesh. This is what Christmas is about. God, the in, eternal, immutable, omniscient, uh, omnipotent God takes on human flesh in the form of a baby. Is that not mind-blowing? Absolutely, absolutely. Just absolutely mind-blowing. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus maintained this same emphasis 
on his incarnate nature, that he was true man as well as true God. He had a dual nature, fully man, fully God. Theological description of that is the hypostatic union, the union of these two natures. How can anybody be fully man and fully God at the same time? We don't know. This is one of the great truths of the Bible, one of the mysteries that our finite, limited, rational capacity cannot grasp entirely. We're just told this is how God, how Jesus exists. Jesus constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man. That same one, like a Son of Man, foretold in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In Matthew's Gospel, if you just dig out a concordance and you look up uh, Son, and then you look up all the references to Son of Man, you see the, the greater preponderance of that expression is used in Matthew's Gospel. Reason being was that Matthew's primary audience was Jewish. And, and the Jews would recognize this term, recognize this phrase, because it was uh, not only descriptive of his humanity, but also it was descriptive of his messiahship. And they would recognize that clearly as him using that term. That's why they, the leaders wanted to kill him, because he was making himself out to be God. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, we read this. Uh, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In Matthew chapter 9, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In Matthew chapter 11, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. In Matthew 16, who do the people say the Son of Man is? In Matthew chapter 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So again, again and again and again. You see these references to the Son of Man in Matthew's Gospel. In John's Gospel, in chapter 3, Jesus uses that same expression. It's a technical term. He uses it when he talks to, guess who? Who's he talking to in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, remember? He's having this interview at night with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is coming to find out exactly who he is. And Jesus says to him, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I mean, you've got to understand, Nicodemus is going, whoa, his mind's got to be, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Applied to anyone as a son of man, the term simply would be used to denote that this person partook in the weakness and the infirmities of the human race. He's just a man, just a human. And what's characteristic of men? That they're weak, they're infirm, vulnerable. And as the phrase, the Son of Man, is used in the New Testament when applied to Jesus himself, there is this undoubted reference to this fact that he sustained a peculiar relation to us. That he was in all respects a man and that he was one of us. He is one of us. In all the implications thereof, he can identify with us. Why? Because he was one of us. He knows what we experience. Why? Because he was one of us. He knows how we're tempted. Why? Because he was one of us. He knows our fears, our anxieties, our temptations. He knows all. Why? Because he was one of us. That is one of the most comforting realities uh, that we can know that the Bible teaches us uh, that he was one of us. He can sympathize with us. He understands. The term Son of Man, again, also, as I suggested, was a reference, a technical term, uh, to the Messiah. And Jesus used that name as one that would be understood to mean Messiah. He used it as if it needed no explanation as having a reference to the Messiah. In other words, he never explained it. He didn't say, Nick, now you know what this means, don't you? No, he knew exactly what he was saying. He deliberately used it. Uh, and this usage could only have come from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. No other passage in the Old Testament uh, refers and uses that phrase, son of man. Ezekiel uses it a couple times. God refers to Ezekiel as the son of man, but not particularly as reference to the Messiah. This would be Jesus alone. On top of that, you, you read all the, all the ancient rabbis and writers 
uh, Jewish uh, uh, accounts and commentaries, and nearly all uh, in general have given that very same interpretation, the Son of Man references Messiah. So it was a technical term, they all knew it, and Jesus understands that and uses it to describe himself. He is declaring, I am the long-awaited one. I am the one you're waiting for. I am the Messiah. But if that title refers to the Messiah, then the question comes up, what is the proper fulfillment of this vision? What does it mean? How do we understand that one, like a son of man, was coming on the clouds of heaven, and we're going to reserve that till next time? So put your finger right there. Okay? Shall we pray? Father, thank you for revealing these things to us, and, and Lord, I for one admit that they, they can sometimes be difficult and confusing, but you tell us to study closely, to meditate on your scriptures, and Lord, that your spirit would reveal to us what is the truth. Lord, we love your word, we love you, and we invite your spirit to have his way in illuminating our understanding in the things that you have revealed. We thank you, God, that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are a father and you have everything under control. Just like little children are comforted and at peace and can sleep at night knowing that their father is home and their father has everything in hand and they don't need to be afraid. Lord, we fear nothing. We're not anxious for anything because we know that our father has everything in control. We love you this morning. We thank you especially for this season. And Lord, for all of your gifts to us. We praise you. We worship you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen.